Well, welcome. My name is Alex. I'm a pastor elder here at Anthem. Um, just want to introduce for you Bert. Most of you guys know Bert. Um, he's been here quite a lot. We love Bert. We love that he um, he gets to be here often, and we're excited that he's going to bring the word this morning. Bert is uh, the pastor over at Anthem Ventura, and um, we're really excited to have him this morning, so I'm going to go ahead and invite Bert up, and uh, he's going to bring the word. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's so good to be with you. Hey, we're, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians 10. That's where we're going to be today. Um, but before we, we dive into the text, uh, you guys are like week three of Kev and Keeley being on uh, sabbatical, and, and by now you're really starting to miss them. I miss them a lot. I miss them day two of them being gone. Uh, you guys may not know this, I see them quite a lot. Kevin's my pastor, so when he goes on sabbatical, he's leaving you and me. So I'm in a pretty tender spot. But I actually just have like a, an encouragement for you guys. Um, as I was thinking and praying for you guys, I wanted to encourage you guys just in the early season of, of the sabbatical. Um, in the summer, uh, especially, are, are lots of opportunities for people to, so, to be a bit scattered to hit the eject button for the pace of life to change quite a bit. And so my encouragement for you is actually to to not do the thing culture tells you to do, which says summer is yours, do with it whatever you want. Um, And to actually like dive in deeper to the community here. Uh, And if you aren't serving somewhere, serve somewhere. Uh, If you aren't in a community group, join a community group. Dive in, invest in those relationships. If you're not giving sacrificially and generously, start giving. And as I was thinking about you guys and praying for you, I was thinking, man, what an incredible testimony to Jesus and his church to a world that sees things so differently if the church actually like grows and gets healthier while the lead pastor is gone. Like, not, not because we don't love Kevin Key and what they invest into us, but what if the church actually grows and is strengthened and is more healthy when the lead family comes back and they come back to see it's actually not all resting on their shoulders, but people in the body are, are stepping up, are diving deeper, uh, are encouraging each other, are investing into not only the community but the city and are taking ownership of the mission that God has given you guys. What a testimony of Jesus and his church to the world who says it actually does rest on this CEO pastor type. And if they just preach well enough and lead well enough, the church grows and is healthy. But what a testimony to the church, to Jesus. What a reflection of what Paul says throughout 1 Corinthians. If the members of the church actually are all coming together as one body, hands, feet, toes, eyes, everything, contributing what they have, and so that's just my encouragement for you guys as we head into summer uh, and as Kevin Keeley are gone for another few months, dive in deeper. Give, serve, strengthen relationships. Be a force to be reckoned with in the city of Camarillo. We love you guys. have been praying for you guys as Kevin Key are out on sabbatical and trusting that people like me are coming in throughout the summer and serving you well by opening the text together. And so let's do that today. Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're in this really long journey as a church going through 1 Corinthians. We're doing it with you guys. We're in it together. Uh, And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now just a bit of like a big picture overview to help give you uh, a little bit of clarity for where we're at throughout this letter. Paul is trying to show these new Christians in the city of Corinth to see all of life, especially life's most complex problems, through the lens of the gospel. 
And so he pulls out a couple of examples, not just out of his hat because he'd heard reports about what's going on in this church. And so he's talking about divisions in the church because people are following one leader or another. He's talking about sex and relationships and how the gospel changes those. He's talking about culture, specifically food and idolatry. And then he'll go on to talk about how we come together in the worship gathering and the resurrection itself. All of some of life's diciest topics that Paul gives us this lens of the gospel to see everything through. And and since chapter eight, what we started out on the camp out, where I loved hanging out with you guys, by the way, at our camp out, what we started there in chapter eight was Paul's diving in to how uh, Jesus and the gospel actually transforms how we interact with the culture around us. All different parts of the culture. So food sacrificed to idols, uh, whether you go to the restaurants or the parties that are held at the temples, how we think of our own rights as, as Americans, as Christians, or for them as Corinthians, like how we think of our own rights and entitlements and the things we're handed and how we're actually called to lay those things down for the sake of others because we love Jesus and we love our brothers and sisters. And in the text today, where we're at today in chapter 10, Paul lays out this kind of strange example for us, how the community of Israel throughout the Old Testament, which was called out by God, set aside by God, gifted by God, blessed by God, and had these incredible spiritual experiences with God, actually blew it all the time. They messed up, they sinned big time, they rejected God, and how they were actually judged for those actions. And because of that, it gives the Christians in Corinth an example. Now, often as we talk about examples in Scripture, we're like looking to Paul or looking to Jesus or looking of all these examples of, of people and, and moments we should be like. You look at Hebrews chapter 11, these examples of faith, and we see, yeah, these are, these are people we should emulate, people we should imitate. And here what Paul's doing is giving us a whole lot of examples of what not to do. He's saying, okay, look at this moment, look at this moment, look at this moment in Israel's history. God's chosen people don't be like them. Don't be like them. See what happened to them. You don't want that to happen to you either. And Paul's going to say dependence on God and his faithfulness, not on us, not on our own abilities or experiences even with God, will help us endure temptation defeat sin, and live the life that Jesus has set out for us. And so let's go to verse 1. we got some work cut out for us this morning. Let's start in verse 1. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. Okay, he's about to do something here. He's saying, I don't want you guys to be out of the loop. I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say. He's going to retell some of the Exodus story. That our fathers... We're all under the cloud. Do you guys know what the, the cloud is? Like under the cloud. When he says under the cloud, this is that moment in Israel's history where God's presence is tangibly and visibly with them. Right? Guiding them. The cloud during the day, the fire by night. God's spirit, his very presence over Israel, leading them where he wants them to be. All right, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So this is the Red Sea. This is fleeing the army of Egypt. So this is God taking his people out from 400 plus years of slavery. He heard the cries of the oppressed and he takes them out. And he's recounting that story. God saves Israel, opens up the sea, rescues them, and drowns the Egyptian army that is coming after them. 
verse 2, and all were baptized, this is really key language for Paul, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is a little bit odd language, but Paul is up to something here. Baptism for Paul is how you identify with a people and a leader. So it maybe helps to understand baptism isn't a uniquely Christian thing. And it may be different practices, it may be different rituals, but there are all sorts of, we can say, initiation rituals in culture and in different religion. It's how you identify with somebody or something or a movement here. They, Paul says, were baptized with this leader, to this leader, Moses, and to a people, Israel. This was a baptism of sorts going through the Red Sea where God had rescued them. And it was a very visible demonstration of God's saving work here. And they all ate, verse 3, the spiritual food, right? Now, if we remember, this word spiritual is really important for Paul. And he has already unpacked it and defined it quite a bit throughout the the letter of, of Corinthians. For Paul, spiritual, to us it might be sort of invisible or ethereal or abstract, But for Paul, spiritual means something different. If you are a spiritual person, what does that mean? It means you're you're animated by the Holy Spirit, right? So he contrasts the worldly people or the fleshly people with spiritual people. He says there are those who are animated by the very Spirit of God and those who are not. And we all ate the same spiritual food, right? And this is the story he's bringing to mind of the manna from heaven, Israel is starving in the desert after God rescues them. This amazing demonstration crushing the Egyptian army brings them out to the desert. What's the first thing they do? They complain. They complain they got nothing to eat. They got nothing to drink. They have no homes and they want to go back to slavery in Egypt. And God tangibly provides for them the manna from the sky and saves Israel again. And Paul calls this real food, spiritual food. It's something that is from God. Verse four, and all drank the same spiritual drink. So it's the same idea here, but now he's recalling the water from the rock. They got nothing to drink, so Moses takes the staff and pierces the rock and water rushes out. And he calls this spiritual water because it is from God himself. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. This is a little bit weird, a rock following them. So uh, we don't have time to get into too much of like the the Jewish legend, uh, the rabbinical tradition around this, but there was a tradition that this very rock that Moses struck actually followed them around the 40 years in the desert. Because in the book of Numbers uh, chapter 20, when they're coming towards the end of their wandering, we see the rock again, where water comes out of the rock. And so you have to ask the question, we have the rock here right when they leave Egypt and the rock 40 years later in the book of Numbers, where did that rock come from? And it is a rabbinical tradition, a Jewish legend that that rock actually followed them. Now, whether that is true or not is sort of besides the point because what Paul is doing is he co-ops that legend and that story and makes this point that the rock was the Messiah. It was Jesus Christ that was with them, tangibly providing for them, his very presence with them. Paul is making the point that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus has been with and was always with God's people. He says, and that rock was Christ. He was there as God providing for them, saving them from death. And the rock was 
the Messiah. Verse 5, nevertheless, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, this is a direct quote, a direct lift from the book of Numbers. And after all these years with God and having his provision for them, they go after all these idols, right? And instead of being able to get to the promised land, they die off in the desert. An entire generation is not allowed to go where God had promised they could go because they kept running after all these other idols, kept getting distracted with all these other cultures that tried to impose their way of life. And so often Israel listened and went after all those other gods and idols. And this is how the story ends. Now we know a new generation goes in the promised land. It's a whole different deal after that. But for this generation that was rescued out of Egypt, they don't get to the promised land. And that's how their story Ends. Do you guys see what Paul is doing here? It's weird, it's layered, it's a little complex, but Paul is reaching back into their shared history, going all the way back to the Exodus story. And he's saying, look at these experiences they had. Look at how God provided for them food and water, not just regular food and water, but food and water from God, spiritual food, spiritual water. Look at how God rescued them out of slavery, hundreds and hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt. God rescued them and he was pointing them towards the promised land. Nevertheless, they didn't get to enter the promised land. Paul is telling this story of Israel in such a way to parallel the story of the Hebrews and the story of the Corinthians so far, right? The Hebrews were baptized into the sea into Moses. The Corinthians were baptized into Jesus. The Hebrews, God's spirit was over them in the cloud and to the Corinthians, God's spirit is in them dwelling inside every single believer. To the Hebrews, God promised spiritual food and drink and provided. And to the Corinthians, he provided the bread and the wine, the communion, to be in relationship and to celebrate and remember what was done to restore that broken relationship. But not all the parallels are good ones, right? Because this story does not end well. The Israelites go after the idols and it ends with most of them, God was not pleased. Maybe there was a handful, but most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, the story is not meant to just keep you down and to be like, oh, this is a bummer of a parallel. Like it seems like God was doing all these amazing things with the Israelites and they kept blowing it time after time. They had all these amazing spiritual experiences with God, all these tangible ways where they were walking with God, knew God and God knew them, all these ways God had actively provided for them and they were still missing it. How often might that describe you and I? With all of these incredible experiences with God, all of this depth of biblical knowledge, years walking with him, years a part of a church community, in a community group serving somewhere, and we still miss it. And not only do we miss it, but the real danger for Israel was presuming upon that relationship, thus giving them license to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Saying, we're good. God, God took us out of Egypt. He rescued us. He parted the Red Sea for me. God provided bread on the floor. He provided this quail. He provided water from a rock 
that maybe or maybe not followed them for 40 years in the desert providing for them. And they still went after these other idols. We're good. God loves us. We're his. We're his people. But I also want a little bit of that and a little bit of that. I also want to do what I want to do. Moses gets up on the mountain. God is speaking to him, giving him the Ten Commandments. Moses is gone. I don't know. The story doesn't really leave us too much information. In my mind, Moses is gone for maybe five minutes, and they come to Aaron and say, build us a golden calf. We need something to worship. They give their gold, and they form it, and they start worshiping a calf right in the middle of the desert after God takes them out, after all these amazing spiritual experiences. They had the ultimate summer camp high and blew it when they came back home. Seriously, how often might that describe us? Paul seems to think it was going to describe us a lot because he says in verse 6, these things took place as an example for us. An example, think patterns. It happened and it happens. Paul says this was not an isolated event. It happened once and it will happen again. It happened a long time ago out in the desert and it happens today. People walk with God, experience him in these miraculous ways, but then they turn away into sin, into idolatry. C.S. Lewis, the famous writer who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and so many, so many other works, says human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. That phrase that Paul uses here, that we might not desire. He says these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. It's actually better translated that we may not crave or lust. The the word here, desire, has rooting in like this internal animalistic craving that we have. This lust for evil. Our desires and affections and cravings are shaped by the way we live our ordinary life. There's a, a shaping liturgy to our lives, a rhythm, an order of worship, if you will, in our daily habits. And as the writer James K.A. Smith says, our heart's desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate daily. Our desires are shaped and transformed by our habits and actions and relationships. Israel desired evil. Did they always desire evil? Were they desiring evil when God was taking them through the Red Sea? I don't, I don't think so. Was, were they desiring evil when he was providing manna and, and water for them and, and following them with the cloud and the fire? I, I don't know. But their desires were shaped by their actions. Every time they went off and worshiped another idol, intermarried with another country or another people group, those desires shifted. Every time they rebelled against God, their inner desire wanted to rebel against God more. Have you guys seen this trajectory in your own life? Maybe in a, in a pathway of like sinfulness in your past or maybe in your present, where the more you dip into it, you may not like consciously, cognitively want more of it, but the more you walk in that space, the easier it becomes to do that in the future. Even though we might think those actions, those behaviors in our life are actually neutral and have no effect on us, they do. Just by getting up in the morning, you are shaped and formed into something. 
Paul is saying everyone's actions have a shaping effect on our desires. Don't desire evil. Let them be an example for you. Don't get caught in the same trap and the same lies the Israelites did. These things happened so that we would not make the same mistakes. Those mistakes of desiring evil. Now, as Christians, your deepest desires are are godly. They're of the spirit. They're of God. We're made in his image. and, And when we repent and believe, we are given his spirit. And our inner deepest desires are godly. But often our strongest desires are not godly. They actually are something that take us away from what God has for us. And when we're facing those moments, Paul says, look to Israel as an example. Don't give in to those strongest desires of desiring evil. Paul says, let's try something different. Did not work for them. Don't think it'll work for you. And what he does here in the next few verses is he elaborates for him. In this context, as he's writing to the Corinthians, what are some of the top level sins that the Israelites got caught up in? He says, don't desire evil. Here's what desiring evil looks like. First, verse seven, do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now here he's quoting Exodus chapter 32, and he's saying the Corinthians are flirting with the very same thing Israel was, which is idolatry. Israel gets bored, waiting for Moses to come down the mountain, and they get Aaron to make him a golden calf. The first sin is idolatry. It's what Paul's been hammering in the last couple of chapters. Since chapter 8, he's been drilling this into them. Don't worship anyone else. Don't give your heart to anyone or anything else but God himself. The second sin here is in verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality if some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now here he's reaching back to a story. Numbers chapter 25 and the second sin is sexual immorality. Remember for Paul, as he's thinking, what, don't desire evil, desire something else. Here is top four examples of what it means to desire evil, idolatry and sexual immorality. Israel gets seduced in Numbers 25 by the Moabite women. They have sex with them. They eat meat sacrificed to idols, which Paul's already dealt with before. And God sends a plague into the Israel camp that kills 20,000 plus people. Paul And God takes sexual immorality really, 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 really seriously. Really seriously. Now, you guys are not sleeping with Moabite women, to the best of my knowledge. um, But what are the other, like, sexual temptations of our day? The stats around pornography usage are mind-boggling. The stats around uh, people who have emotional affairs with people who are not their spouse, mind-boggling. The amount of visual stimulation we allow into our brain and not even notice it by the TV shows and movies we watch is astounding. Paul takes this really seriously. The story he quotes are 20,000 plus people getting killed by God for sexual immorality. Idolatry, sexual immorality. And the third, verse nine, we must not put Christ to the test. Testing God. Now, this is a little bit weird. 
Our English translations don't do us a ton of favors here because that can be like, we can slippery slope this one really easily. So Paul is reaching back to Numbers chapter 21. And what Paul is getting at is testing is the opposite of trusting. Testing is the opposite of trusting. It's complaining and fighting with God. It's not asking why. It's not processing with God. But it is complaining. It's grumbling. It's murmuring. It's fighting with God. It's the Israelites out in the desert being provided for by God himself saying, why'd you even bring us out here? Let's go back to slavery in Egypt. I don't, I don't fully trust the plan you have for me. Let's go back to where things are known and easier. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21, when they revolted and complained about how God was providing, God sent serpents into the camp. And a close, close brother, close sister of that one is grumbling, which is the fourth sin here. And Numbers 14, he is reaching back. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So grumble is to like murmur, to whine, that's speaking under your breath. Now, you guys don't struggle with this one at all, but I have friends who do, and I pray for them all the time, guys. I pray for them, the grumblers, but you guys are not grumblers. You're not whiners. Here, Paul is is not necessarily getting at a specific story. He points to one in Numbers 14, but sadly, there are many, many stories of Israel falling into the sin, grumbling, complaining, whining, Multiple times, Israel grumbles. And Paul says, God sent the destroyer to kill them. Now, these four sins, idolatry, sexual morality, testing God, grumbling. These are big deals for Paul. They're big deals for God. But you guys catch that this is connected to the first half of the story. God saves them. He rescues them. They're baptized into him. God provides for them. God's spirit and presence is with them. And yet, God kills people he saved. Isn't that weird? Does that sit uncomfortably with you? It should. It should sit uncomfortably with you that God kills people he saves. But do you see what Paul is doing here? Paul is telling us the story of Israel in such a way to show the parallel between the Hebrews and the Corinthians. And we should fill in that gap in us, Camerians in 2019. Do we see the parallels with Israel and with Corinth? Because it happened and it happens today. The Hebrews went away from God, worshipped idols. They engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality with other peoples. They tested God. They grumbled consistently. The Corinthians, so much of this letter is about idolatry and sexual immorality. Right? God deals with food. There's a famine on it. And instead of trusting God for food, you're going to the temple and, and eat meat sacrificed to idols. Right? The Corinthians were writing these nasty letters to Paul, grumbling about him or about Apollos or about Peter or about the other leaders. And the whole reason he's writing this letter is because word of their grumbling and complaining got back to Paul. 
Right, Paul, busy guy, I'm sure he's got other things to do. Here's what's going on in Corinth and writes this fiery letter back to them. These things Paul talks about are not random. They are dealing with specific issues that Paul has heard about. It happened and it happens. It happened to the Hebrews. It happened to the Corinthians and it happens with you and me. And Paul is saying, listen, wake up. This story does not end well for the Hebrews. It does not. Verse 11, these things happen to them as an example. Examples in obedience and disobedience. Which ends better for people? Obedience or disobedience? It's not a trick question. Obedience ends better for people than disobedience. But they were written down for our instruction. Paul says, look what happens when God's people, the idolatrous, the sexually immoral, what happens to them? These things were written down in the scriptures for you and me so that we would learn and live differently. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. This is really important language for Paul. If we remember back in Corinthians, uh, I believe it's chapter 3, Paul was unpacking this language of, of ages, this present age and the age to come, right? And they collide in the person and the work of Jesus. And now we sit in this crux of two ages, this present age overlapping with the age to come, the kingdom of God colliding with the powers of this earth where Jesus has come, but he's going to come again. And we live in this overlap where you are given choice. To obey or not obey. To learn from the examples of the Hebrews or the Corinthians or follow their same mistakes. And in case we think we're the ones who actually have this figured out, Paul says this in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. For us today... Israel's story doesn't have to be your story, but it's not inevitable. It's not inevitable just because Jesus came. It's not inevitable because you have God's spirit inside of you. Here's an interesting little grammatical tidbit we get from the text here. In uh, our our English translation, there, there are a couple of different words depending on which translation you're reading from. But in verse 8, when Paul says 23,000 fell in a single day or might read died in a single day, that is the exact same word as in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he die. Same word. It's this word pipto. It means to be destroyed. What Paul is not getting at here. Is take heed lest you fall. Let you fall into temptation or sin. In verse 12, what Paul does mean is if you are in sin, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, grumbling, this ongoing, unrepentant, blatant sin, take heed lest God may destroy you. In the Old Testament, God kills people he saves. Don't presume upon the grace of God 
God saves you, you don't just check out and do anything you want because the grace of God covers. Paul says, grace abounds. Do we go on sinning? By no means. To Paul, this is really serious stuff. Don't take your sin lightly. It is 12 verses of the heaviest of the heavy warnings to guard yourself and not fall into the same traps of what has gone before. But he doesn't leave us in the depths. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So which is it? Paul says, watch out or God will kill you. And God is faithful. He'll provide a way out. There is a tension that we have to walk into. Just like Paul does and so often Jesus does on our behalf. We need to live in that tension, this tension of the fear of God with the love of the Father. You should be scared to death of the implications of your sin and sleeping like a baby all at the same time living in these two spaces at once. And for some of you in the room, you need to hear, if you think you are standing firm, so my sin doesn't matter. I go to church, I was baptized, but I'm in blatant sin, but it's okay. Some of you guys need to hear, take heed, lest you fall. Some of you guys in the room need to hear, God's faithful. He'll provide a way out. He doesn't leave you hanging. Your sin is not the end of you. Paul walks right into this temptation. Now with verse 13, there are three things about temptation that are worth a little side tangent before we get to the end of what Paul is saying here. Three things about temptation from this text. First, you will always be tempted. Uh, Jesus was tempted, and we always say at Anthem Mature, what's good enough for Jesus is good enough for us. I guess that goes with temptation as well. If Jesus is tempted, was tempted, you better believe you are going to be tempted. The stats on temptation are crazy. 100% of people are going to be tempted all the time. The good news is temptation is not a sin. Hear me. Being tempted is not a sin. The bad news is you're going to be tempted every day of your life to walk in sin. You will be tempted to think I'm the only person dealing with this. But that's not true because the second thing about temptation is you are not alone. No temptation has come to you that hasn't come to anybody else. You are not alone. Nothing that you're tempted with is unique to you. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I don't, the grossest, deepest, darkest problem in your life, nothing is unique to you. You are not alone. Third thing, there is always a way out. Paul is telling the Corinthian church there is always a way of righteousness when you're tempted. You have been set free from sin and you're no longer slaves to it. So you actually have the option not to give in to temptation. No one's saying it's not going to be easy, but you have the choice. Now this right here might be possibly one of the most pastoral moments Paul has in this entire letter. He is genuinely exhorting them to live a different way to remind them God is faithful. 
He's not in this to get you. He always provides a way out for those he calls his own. You are not required to be idolaters regardless of your past. You're not required to be sexually immoral because of your past. You're not required to be testing of God or grumblers of God because of what has happened in your past. Jesus has truly set you free from exclusively choosing sin. Now you have the option of pursuing righteousness. It's not inevitable, but you have the option of partnering with the Spirit in your own sanctification. God always provides a way out of sinfulness. There's no temptation that arises that the choice for righteousness is not available. Hear me again. There is no temptation that arises in your life that the choice for righteousness is not available. As a result of that, Paul can say, really at the climax and the linking verse between what he's getting at today and what we're going to talk about next week, therefore, flee from idolatry. God is faithful, flee, get out of there. Flee from sinfulness. When temptation hits you, run the other way as fast as you can. Run uh, away from everything that supplants Christ as the motive for what we do and who we are in life. The good news of this text is Israel's story does not have to be your story. Jesus has come. He has come to provide a different kind of example for us. We have the example of what not to do and the story of the Israelites and to agree to the story of the Corinthians. And we have in Jesus a different way forward. Jesus, filled by the Spirit, was tempted but never sinned, 1 Peter tells us. And the goal here, just so you know, the goal here of this text is not not sinning. That's not the goal. The goal here is not not sinning. The goal here is that you would be so enraptured by Jesus and the gospel that as you grow in love and worship for Jesus, you actually grow in obedience in all of life, resisting temptation as you become more like him. The goal here is not to trample on the hard, fought, and won grace freely given to you and to live in light of that calling. Don't assume that our standing in Jesus allows us to let our guard down and freely indulge anything we want in the world. And the good news is that Jesus sends his spirit to help us. John chapter 14, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, defeating death and sin, rising from the dead, bringing us new life, sending us his spirit, we can truly live empowered by the spirit. And in moments of temptation, we don't have to to follow Israel's story, the Corinthian story. We can choose righteousness, obedience, and faithfulness. Israel's story doesn't have to be your story. The Corinthian story doesn't have to be your story. Your own past does not have to be your future. When faced with temptation, Paul's pastoral advice, run. 
Run. May you run. May you take stock, take heed, not be prideful or haughty. May you know God is faithful to always provide a way out. And may you live in the love of God and in the fear of God at the same time. Let's go ahead and stand. I want to pray. We need to respond to the love and the fear of God at the same time. Let's stand. I want to pray for you as we sing together. Father, help us live in this tension of fearing you and experiencing your love for us. Father, help us to be faithful to you as you have always and already been faithful to us. When we're faced with moments, Father, to choose you or to choose something else that's trying to rob us of you, would you, by the power of your spirit, enable us to choose you? God, we know you've saved us. You have rescued us. You have sealed us with your spirit. Help us to not fall into the same trap as the Israelites. Presuming upon your work and then doing whatever we want. Father, we confess we do that daily. Rid our lives of that kind of hypocrisy. Rid our lives of that kind of sinfulness. Rid our lives of that kind of trampling on you after you sacrificed your one and only son so that we would have life with you. God, thank you for your grace. Would we not trample all over it with how we live? Thank you that you are faithful, that you always provide a way out. And Father, thank you for such clear instructions to flee the things that try to take your place in our life. As we respond today, God, would we respond to you as the true king of our life, as our savior, our provider, our very presence with us? Would we worship you as king? Would you, by the power of your spirit, enable us to live lives of long obedience in the same direction. Amen. Guys, as we sing, communion is available on either side of the room. There are going to be some people who would love to pray for you. And and also for us at Anthem, giving is an act of worship. And so as we sing at any point, feel free to get up, receive communion, give of your tithes and offerings, go get prayer if you would like prayer. But let's sing together of the greatness of our faithful God.